Be Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc and Brian here and welcome to Doc Talks. We talk about people's lives, troubles, traumas, tribulations, and everyday life. And today with me, I have Eric Norman. Eric, it's good to see you. Good to have you here with us. Exactly. It's good to see you too. I'm very happy to be here. Well, Eric and I uh, met through TikTok, which is where I've met a lot of uh, people who have been on Doc Talks. And so maybe we need to branch out a little, a little bit from TikTok. But uh, Eric, I, I met and one of the first videos uh, that I saw of yours was talking about your life and some of the struggles you've been through, but telling others that it's fine, you're fine, we're fine. And uh, there's a lot of comfort just in hearing those words from someone else. I definitely agree. Yeah. Uh, TikTok has, I've met a lot of people on there, just like I met you, like you said. Um, and it's become a place of comfort for me and it's very therapeutic. So um, I'm happy that some some people who can relate and resonate with my story are uh, changing their day around at least. Absolutely. And uh, I remember the first time I came in your live and you're completely fangirled out, you know, may have had a little bit of wine, half a bottle or so. And Christian, your friend was, was in there and he was like, who in the world is Doc Bryan and why are you going on and on and on about this? And and it was hilariously funny to me, but hurting at the same time that Christian didn't know who I was. You know, how how does that happen? I know we had to educate him, obviously. I definitely was fangirling out. And well, at the time, in my eyes, I was very lower account, so to speak. And I was just getting into lives. It was like one of my first lives, I think, to be honest with you, which by the way, since then I go live almost like every single night when I'm not banned by TikTok. And fall asleep on the couch. And and I fall asleep and we have slumber <laughs> parties on my TikTok live, which is fine, really. I mean, I'm home 95% of the time if I'm going to be sleeping and on the live and people want to join in, that's great. But I remember you coming in and I was like, oh my God, Brian, like I know this account. Like I didn't know, know you, like we hadn't met yet, but I was like, this guy's in my, why is he tuning in here? So I was totally fangirling out and you have a pretty large, you know, account and presence on TikTok. So I was like, well, can you special? Yeah. I, uh, there is this girl on TikTok that she probably has, well, she has at least a thousand followers because she can go live. She is in all of the TikTok therapist lives. I mean, it doesn't matter which one of us is live. She is there. So I started following her on Instagram and she was live on Instagram yesterday. And, uh, I went in her live and she literally could not talk because <laughs> doc Brian was in her live. So I asked her and started screen recording. I said, so, and everybody calls her pickles. I'm not sure why people call mm -hmm. her pickles, but they call her pickles. And, uh, so I was like, so pickles, who is your favorite TikTok therapist. And she was like, Oh my God, I don't know. I can't, I can't. And I was like, and so one of her followers said, well, doc Brian is here. Do you see Dr. J or line mental health or a modern or not your average therapist? You know, all of these people. And she was like, okay, so my favorite 
is Doc Bryan. And I was like, thank you for saying that I'm saving the screen recording and uh, sending it to Dr. J and to Jesse and to Kristen and, and uh, they'll all know. And she was like, you did not do that. And I was like, absolutely did. So if you go on my TikTok, you can see that and you can see her freaking out in the comments. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and it's, it's nice to be recognized, you know, for, for the work that, that we're doing. And, and your account really has taken off too, uh, within the last couple of months. It has more specifically the last like month and a half through like happenstance, really. It's just, I didn't plan anything. There wasn't a, uh, like business model or growth strategy or anything still there isn't i just post my life on there there might be a little bit more structure now than there was originally when i would post random videos of me coming out of you know surgery and anesthesia and stuff like that and i might i might post more videos that contain more of a positive you know message and just you know letting people know that hey like you matter and you are loved and if somebody hasn't said that to you today well guess what i just did but i do just posed my life as it's happening and it's, it's gotten to where it is now, which is beautiful and amazing. And hopefully it's, it's not going to stop. Absolutely. So since you're talking about your life, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Where, where were you born? Where, where did Eric Norman begin? <laughs> Eric, well, which version? So the original, Norman, the original version. Eric Norman was born and raised in Buffalo, New York. And which is where your love for the Buffalo Bills comes into play? hundred percent. So normally if I was going to be a guest on a podcast, I'd probably wear some sort of a button up or like a polo or something like that. But due to current events, I think that this is probably the most appropriate attire. Go Bills. I don't follow sports. I've never been like a, a sports follower. I've been a fan of like, I'm the, I love going to sporting events and, and all that. And I definitely know who Josh Allen is. He's all of our second husbands, but he, uh, um, I hope that he sees that one day, but I never followed sports. I don't know names and stuff like that. I'm born and raised in Buffalo. So Buffalo Bills are number one. Sabres are number one. Back when we had a soccer team, the Blizzards, they were number one. Bills Mafia. It, it is true. And it is, uh, it's part of who you are if you're born and raised in Buffalo. So. so you were born in Buffalo. Did you have any siblings? Yeah. So I have an interesting family tree, if you will. My closest brother that I was raised with, he's seven years older than me. We have different dads. So we're technically half brothers, but he's my brother. We were raised in the same house, you know, with my mom, who's a single mom. My father wasn't really part of my life. Um, I never met him with the exception of when I was like first born. He actually wasn't even at the hospital. He had struggled with an alcohol and drug addiction for a number of years. My mother did as well. I was actually born on her second anniversary of sobriety of being drug and alcohol free so and now she's 32 years drug and alcohol free so she's an inspiration to me and many other people so my my dad when i was uh, a baby he literally showed up one day soon after i was born and stayed for a couple days and then literally this is not the cliche even though it sounds like it he literally went to the store to get cigarettes and came back three days later with my mom's car to fight to sum it up was basically, if you can't be, you know, sober, then you can't be in his life. I'm not going to let you do that to him. And then herself too, right? She is an infant in her sobriety. She is forever in recovery. And she was only two years sober at that point. Now she has a five-year-old and a, a, an infant, a baby, and it was a lot of stress and she didn't want to backtrack. So she was like, you need to get out or you need to get sober or both. So he decided to leave and never came back in my life. 
my dad's Puerto Rican. So I'm mostly Puerto Rican and then I'm white on my mom's side. So that, that side of the family is very, very large. And uh, I have a lot of nieces and nephews over there. I stay in touch every once in a while throughout the years we've come together and um, we reconnect every couple of years. So it's, it's good to know that it's not a completely like ostracized situation, which is good. So two half brothers and a half sister, one half brother that I mainly grew up with. So growing up in school, elementary school, middle school, what were you like? I was a very energetic and crazy child. In part due, when I look back and talk with my brother, who, like I said, is seven years older than me, he had a different perspective and remembers more of when I was an infant through being a toddler and in elementary school than I do. And he, he attributes like lack of attention to my childhood as like me acting out. My mother, I love her to death. And we're very open about talking about the things that we've gone through in life and stuff like that. My mom, especially back then, being so liberated through her sobriety, a lot of attention was on her all the time. You know, it was very, look at me, I'm sober now, you know, kind of, kind of attention. And at least that's kind of like what my brother tells me. I just wasn't getting a lot of the attention that I would probably have needed as, as a toddler. So I acted out quite a lot. In elementary school, I had friends. Um, I, I'd play with other kids, stuff like that but largely was uh, just that kid that had ADHD and was, you know, not normal compared to other, you know, uh, kids my age kind of thing. And then, you know, we were very religious growing up in a Christian non-denominational home. My mother, through her sobriety process, rooted herself in those principles. And like, that was basically like the lifesaver for her. That's like part of how she was able to one, get sober and then maintain sobriety. So it became like 110% our lives. So there was a big, huge, there was a big divide for me. Um, and I'm sure we'll get there, but like all the way up through high school where, you know, there was, you know, you have your secular um, school life and then, you know, you, we have our church life and we can't allow the, our secular life to impede in our church life. And there was just always this huge divide that I remember growing up. My mother had remarried when I was five and then divorced when I was like nine or so. Through that whole process, we had to like move. Uh, my brother during that divorce was 17, went into the Navy. It was my mom and I now for the large, a large part of the formidable years of my life where it was really just like, almost like I was kind of an only child. And every four years, you know, a new boyfriend that came into her life kind of thing. Because I still stayed in the same area, fifth grade, I went to another elementary school and met all these new people and didn't talk to anybody from my old school. Nobody there liked me. I got into middle school. The middle school was comprised of all of the elementary schools in the area. So now I'm back into this pool of everybody that I did know and everybody I now know and had issues and things there and that stemmed all the way up into high school, but, but we'll get there. So elementary school is pretty crazy and, and middle school and a little bit of high school is struggled with some, you know, ADHD related symptoms and things like that, mostly unmedicated from my understanding. When I was younger, 10 and younger, you know, I think she had tried Ritalin at first and, and I don't remember any of this, but apparently it didn't, it changed like my behavior and everything. And she, she did not, she was like, I, I'm not going to give him drugs to fix this. I don't like where he's at. We'll deal with the, the hyperactivity on our own. 
so up until high school, I was largely unmedicated and always was acting out and trying to seek attention. Gotcha. So pro tip here, and of course, I'm not a medical doctor and this is not medical advice, uh, but if you have a child that you believe is suffering from ADD or ADHD, a cup of coffee in the morning without sugar can curb that ADHD quite a bit in a child. So pro tip there. Uh, once again, not a medical doctor. This is not medical advice, uh, but is anecdotal. I have seen it happen uh, firsthand. Now, here's my notepad so I can write down <laughs> that. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, caffeine, uh, you know, caffeine's a stimulant, and what you take for ADHD remarkably is a stimulant. And so, in younger children, that, that push of caffeine really does help as a stimulant uh, with ADHD. Now, you had mentioned um, in your submission, uh, guest submission form that, that you sent in, that you were raised in a very strict, non-denominational type church that kind of clashed, if you will, uh, during your self-identification process. And you, you stated, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that you came to the realization that you were gay when you were six years old. Can you kind of explain how you knew at six years old? Well, I didn't know at six. Looking back, I would say I knew when I was six. But at six years old, I didn't really know what I was feeling. At six years old, how do you know? How do you know what the difference between being homosexual or being heterosexual and and everything else in between? You know, you just know that you like what you like. So, quick short story: my mother um, in 1996, when I was six years old that's when Titanic came out and she wanted to see it in theaters. So she had me go late into school and wrote me a note because she wanted to like me to go with her. She didn't want to go alone. And I remember we were watching and we get to the end when Rose lets Jack go, you know, and says, I'll never let go. And I just started crying. I was like head over heels for Jack and couldn't believe that she would let go. And I'm six years old and I have no idea why I'm thinking what I'm thinking. I just know what I'm thinking and then the feelings, right? Can't put it all together or understand it up until later on in life. When I look back, I'm like, that's that's one of my earliest memories of having an attraction towards men. Although through childhood, not understanding that it was wrong until I got into my adolescence, early adolescence. And then obviously now knowing that it is not wrong is totally different story. So there's a couple different flips of the switch, if you will, in my acceptance of who I am. Also combating that against searching and longing for acceptance from other people, especially the people that are like in the inner circle, family, friends, and stuff like that. So the coming out process. With my childhood, and having the church be such a formidable experience and an ingrained lifestyle, way of life, it was very difficult for me to understand and come to terms with me being gay. I couldn't even say the words. I couldn't even think about it, even though I was, you know, and I did everything that any other human being does through adolescence and puberty and everything. But the huge issue for me was that it was a terrifying experience. Like I mentioned before, when I was nine-ish, my mom got a divorce from her husband at the time. Brother went off into the military. It was just me and my mom. 
for that period of time, my mom worked a lot. She, she had like two jobs and stuff. And our church was like 20, 30 minutes away, which is very common. Everything in Buffalo is 20 minutes away. Right. But it was just a lot to be able to go there twice a week. So we stopped and we became the, you know, on the holidays, we would go to church kind of thing for a couple of years until I was of the age to go into youth group. So this is a little backstory into my experience through my relationship with Christ and my, and my church. Then I'll jump back to simultaneously, you know, working through being gay or not being gay or identifying whether it's right or wrong and all that. About 12, I was able to go back. I could now go to youth group and I didn't have to go to like, you know, just the children's church. And I finally had felt a sense of like belonging. I belonged less to the church and more to like a group of people that were similar ages. Um, a lot of us had different backgrounds, public school, private school. I just felt finally like I was home. I was very, very involved with the church. I was on our church drama team. Um, we went to missions trips to Costa Rica, outreach efforts, you know, evangelizing within our own community. I took that and put that in my secular life as like, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, got made fun of a lot in school and things like that. And I tried to push through it and build a sense of resiliency, even though I didn't really understand that concept. But looking back, I used the teachings um, that were being provided by our youth pastor, my own, you know, daily devotionals and going to various conferences and festivals and our outreach efforts. And combining all of that, I was building a sense of, you know, security and resiliency. So at my school, you know, at one point I started a Bible club, you know, in my middle school, we would do prayer service. There was the National Day of Prayer. I think it, it's the National Day of Prayer. We'll see you at um, the poll. See you at the poll. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, I organized that in my middle school. I organized that at my high school. And a lot of people did come together, of course. But then, of course, there was four times the amount of persecution, if you will. A lot of that persecution wasn't just because you were praying and religious and whatnot. It was just because kids are kids and they bully. And of course, it's not acceptable. But if you're different than them in any way, they seek that out and that becomes the focal point. Through all of that, I am simultaneously dealing with the notion that I am gay. The way that I was taught. So at that point, though, you hadn't come out? No. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. The coming out process was a very difficult situation that didn't happen until towards the end of high school and then into my early 20s. There is one moment in time, though, that I'll get to in a second. When I was in my early teens, wasn't really coming out, but it's just different. Let me explain. I, at a very young age, had recognized that the thoughts and the feelings that I had were wrong. They were um, against the teachings that I of the Bible. It was sin. It was Satan grabbing a hold of my life and using me as a vessel to promote his agenda, if you will. I battled dealing with the fact that in God's eyes, sin is sin. Sin is different than our laws and how we process things down here from a legal standpoint, murder versus, you know, larceny, stealing something, you know, those are weighted differently in the justice system. Well, God's justice system is everything is equal. I knew that I was going to hell. I tried for so long to not have these thoughts and feelings and to force myself to be with, with girls and have girlfriends. And it was one identity crisis after another. But at that young age, I 
was terrified because I knew that I was going to hell. I was in, in my mind, I was like rationalizing. I never would bash anybody at my, my old church. You know, they're very amazing and loving people. This was more of a, I'm a child at the end of the day. And I am being taught things that are like the law. I know that what I'm thinking and feeling goes against that law. And I didn't know how to handle that. So I went to one of our youth leaders who, looking back, hindsight 2020, when you're 13 years old and you're looking up to a youth leader who is 19, they seem like they are like, oof, I can't wait to be that one day. I'm 30 years old now. And I look back and being 19 years old, you're basically still a child. You don't know anything. So a 13-year-old going to a 19-year-old would be pretty impactful and also terrifying. I actually went to that individual and said, listen, because I trusted them. I was like, I just need help. This is where my thoughts, my feelings are. I know that that's not okay. I don't want to go to hell. I don't know what to do. I was like, I don't want to live a life of agony. I don't want to have to be here anymore and go through this if like all of this is going to happen anyways. How can I have a prosperous and joyous and happy life if this is going to be this internal struggle for the rest of my life? Because I've tried. I can't not have these thoughts anymore. I've tried. So what do I do? He had no idea what to do. So he went to the youth pastor who then went to the head pastor of the church who that night brought my mom in, didn't know any of this happened. I was cornered by our youth pastor before my mom picked me up. I, of course, denied absolutely everything because now I'm like, oof, immediate defense. Like, I can't talk about this. Like my mom on my, on the way home that night, she even, we get almost home. She pulls in a parking lot at a Rite Aid and you know, she confronts me. And of course I deny everything. It's like, it's almost like a coming to Jesus moment. My mom then like accuses me of lying and, 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 and she's like, I don't know what to do with you anymore. I can't handle this. So she tries to drive me to the local medical center, emergency medical center and have me like admitted into a psych ward because like she can't handle this. I remember being in the triage with a nurse or a doctor or somebody. And they're like, tell me why you're here. And of course I, I actually explained everything. And she was like, you're not crazy. Like there is no reason for you to be here. And if we do this right now, you know, then like this can set up a disastrous chain of events for you for the rest of your life. Like as it comes to like military or public service and, you know, it's on your record that you were, you know, at this young age and then you'd have to explain why and will people even believe you? So she brought my mom back and my mom was and explained to my mom, like, your son's gay and he is struggling through coping with that against all the teachings and everything that he has in his life. Like he's being told that it's wrong. It's not wrong, perfectly normal and okay. He is not psychotic or crazy. We go home and to this day, we have never talked about that night ever again. It's almost like it never even happened. Fast forward, it was like a blip in time. And then right back to the, you know, well, now I definitely can't tell anybody. Like, this is never coming up again. I cannot have this happen, especially if I, at the end of the day, had this huge fear of like, well, if I actually do open up about all this stuff, I'm going to a psych ward. You know, I'm going to be like banished. Um, They're going to try to like convert me. Like a lot of it was very rationally irrational. In my adolescence and in being a teenager, I was like, yep, we're just shutting that right off. You know, I'm not gay. 
Um, I can do have my thoughts and my feelings, but that is never going to get out to anybody. Right. Now, you said you were 13, 14 years old? Yeah, it was it was around that, that okay. period of time. I, I believe, and, and you, you won't find this term in psychology, but I believe in a thing called value processing, and that takes place between 8, 9 to 13, 14 years old. And how we're treated during that time is how we will consider our value to be for the rest of our life. And so I could only assume up until the point of where you finally told the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, that you were scared to death to tell anybody or for anybody to know. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Yeah. And and your mom not talking about it probably was just a traumatic coping experience for her to say, okay, I didn't do that. And there may have even been some guilt and shame that she did that. There's a, a number of reasons why we just don't talk about it kind of ordeal. I grew up in a, an assembly of God church. And if something like that were to happen, uh, they would just simply ask you to not come to church anymore. If you weren't going to I'm going to use this this quote and not to be offensive, but if you weren't willing to attempt to pray the gay away, then you just weren't going to be allowed. Did anything like that happen to you or your experience of that nature? No. I tried to seek help that the aftermath of that night occurred, and then it was never talked about, brought up. I don't know if it was talked about amongst the other pastors or people or the deacons. Like, I have no idea. From my memory, it was, I saw how the aftermath occurred and it was never talked about again after that. It just never was literally spoken about ever again up until now. Did you feel betrayed by that youth leader? (laughs) I'm sure I did. When I look back on that period of time, there's a lot of higher emotions and feelings that I was processing and dealing with that would overshadow that by far. Like what led me to seek help was still being internally processed. I didn't accept myself, you know, after that and that nurse or doctor telling me like, no, this is normal. In my mind, I was like, no, it's not normal. You know, like this is not okay. But I was just now in fear and scared to go out there and and try to seek help again. I was still the same person that I was before that happened, but now I was just more repressed to to hide everything. And and like I told myself at one point, you're just going to have to live a life that's a lie. Like you're just going to have to deceive everybody around you in order to go about your life in a proper godly way. It's like worse, you know, like. <laughs> and, and could be a huge detriment to your, your own mental health. Was there ever a time during that period of, of transition, I guess would be the best word, where there was physical abuse to you from anyone? No, nothing like that. No, I was there. There was a lot of like emotional things that, that would happen, you know, clashing between my mom and myself. And when your entire life is a lie, like you're living a lie and you know that, it bleeds into these other areas of your life that impact the people around you, your mental health, your spiritual wellness, your physical health. I was combating that day in and day out. 
you know, I say, I look back and sometimes I'm like, my mom gave me the hardest time with things, but she was also just, and she is not a bad mom and, and she, she didn't do anything necessarily wrong. I mean, she has her own mental health issues and stuff. And, you know, that doesn't, you know, I don't blame her for anything, you know, but there were, there would be so many times where we would clash on stuff. And a lot of it would be stemmed from me, you know, being a liar, a deceiver and, ingraining that into everything else that I am. I would forget my lies. I would forget, you know, how did I just, how I deceived people today on, on one thing, but a week ago it was something else. Thinking back, like saying this out loud right now, I'm like, wow, I was an awful person. I really wasn't. I just didn't know how to be me and thought that I could never be me. And at the same time, didn't even know who me was. Still tried to navigate that self-acceptance, self-identification process all the way up until my mid-20s. Even after I had considered myself officially coming out, it was up until after my divorce through that process that I really honed in on who the hell Eric Norman actually is. And, you know, not the person who I want to be, but the person I just needed to accept myself to be and live in that life and that truth. Back when I was younger, if you want my little coming out story, so to speak, which I'll I'll mention one thing at the end of this, because I think it's something that a lot of us us, meaning human beings, don't understand about a person's coming out story. When I was younger, when I actually lost my virginity um, at the age of 17, it was with a guy. And it was very funny and embarrassing and just very weird. One of those like lasted 20 seconds kind of thing. But it sent me in a whirlwind of thoughts, emotions, and feelings because I was like, oh my God, this was the first time that I acted on these thoughts and feelings, if you will, with another human being, same sex. And it just, oof, I seriously was very conflicted in my convictions. Unfortunately for me, that person was already out and was living a life, his own life, whatever. But he was very dramatic and with things. And he decided to, when we were in the car one day with a bunch of our friends, just tell everybody. And it was hurtful and very traumatic and people were very shocked and I was freaking out. Fast forward those couple of years, all those friends are still around with me now and they they did support me. And there was a lot of conversations of like, you know, we're sorry that you ever thought that you could never tell us something like this. It, it wasn't a, we don't care or we care situation. It was just, we don't see what the big deal is, but we understand that you know, you had a very tough time thinking that we would like not love you anymore, which of course is not the case. But I had one friend back then who was an amazing person and human being. His name was Brett. He and I never had anything between us. The only emotional aspect that we had were that like we cared about each other. You know, there was no romantic or anything. He was just like one of my best friends and we hung out all the time. He's out and outspoken about it. And I wasn't at the time. So I remember specifically this one day, it was January 30th, 2009. I was making my mom's version of Sloppy Joe's in my house, our house. And she came back probably to like get some more clothes or something to take over to the new boyfriend's house. And she sits down at the counter as I'm making it. And she's like, honey, I need to talk to you. She's like, so you and your friend, Brett, he's gay, right? I was like, yeah. I was like, he's a pretty cool guy. He's like a year or two older than me. We were both were going to the University of Buffalo at the time. Um, and she was like, well, you're hanging out with him like a lot. And I was like, okay. So 
like, what's the point? And she was like, honey, I just, I just have to ask you, are you bisexual? I was like stirring my sloppy joes and I was like, no, I'm not very confidently because I'm not, <laughs> you know, I said that, right. I'm not denying that obviously, because I'm not. Uh, then she's like, well, okay, but are you homosexual? And she whispers it in our kitchen where there is no one, anybody. And it just like, in that moment, a million thoughts came through my mind. One was I'm largely defensive and of saying like, say no, say no, like you've always have. I am combating that confliction because no, you're an adult now. Like you're living on your own. You don't have, it doesn't matter if she accepts you or if she doesn't accept you. You need to do this. No, don't do that. No, don't do that. Like I'm going back and forth. At the same time, I sit back and I'm like, this is massively offensive that you just asked me if I was bisexual and then whispered, are you homosexual? When it's just the two of us five feet apart and I'm 19 years old and we're five feet away from each other and you're just looking at me and you have to whisper it. It's like, it was just massively offensive to be like, clearly it's not going to be okay if I say that I am gay. Clearly you're ashamed. Clearly it's just evident that when I say yes, it's not going to be okay for you. I look at her and I said, yes, I am. Is that okay? She immediately bust out laughing, saying, I knew it. I knew it. I knew you were gay. I've known all these years. And then she started crying hysterically. And then the crying stopped and she got extremely angry and just left. Being that she experienced those three emotions, did at first you think, well, okay, she accepts this because she's known the entire time and then immediately start crying and you're going, mm, but I thought you were okay with it. And that plethora of emotion, <laughs> how did that process with you? Through saying yes to her leaving, the whole time I was confused. I was happy confused. And then I was like sad confused because I'm like, my mom's crying. I just made my mom cry. I thought it was happy tears. And then I realized that it was sad tears, which was still okay because clearly there's an inner struggle within herself, which is fine. And then the anger, I did not necessarily expect that. For the next year after that, we barely spoke. I moved out of the house, completely felt ostracized, excommunicated from my own family. And I, I moved to the, the in, into the city, downtown Buffalo. And the next like two and a half years of my life were all on my own accord. I struggled a lot through poverty, through decision-making, through relationships and finding people to love and understand me and all this stuff. I, I, it's, I call it my like two crazy years, really three, but I call it my two crazy wild years. Um, I learned a lot of lessons that helped form who I am today. A lot of pain, a lot of trauma. It, it was definitely a difficult time. And I brought it all upon myself in a way, right? Through my own choices and my actions. But those weren't your choices. Who you are is not your choice. I'm, I'm talking about not choosing to be me. I'm talking about like the actions and my behavior and some things that I did were my choices. So were you thinking, okay, I can't tell anybody, but maybe this will go away and I will be, I'm going to use the word normal, even though we know normal is a very relative term, but maybe use the word, I will come out of this and I will be heterosexual like everybody else. Maybe I'm just confused about what's going on. When I had that experience with my mom, which one thing to note was every other day that I woke up, I had text messages from her that just 
were Bible verses after Bible verse after Bible verse. So it, it, it kept compounding all of this emotion, pushing me, pushing me even further away, right? I left to go seek a group of people, individuals that would just accept me for who I am and I don't have to ask for it. I don't have to come out. I don't have to tell them anything except for me, even though me still, I didn't know and or accept. Although I was, I was out, I, I really wasn't. I still was struggling for a number of years, even through my first very serious relationship that led to marriage and divorce. Even through that, still was combating my identity acceptance and the person that I am and being gay. Do you differentiate between those two? <laughs> so it's interesting because whenever I really talk about being gay or like in my recent TikTok video, gay marriage, I even say in, gay, in that TikTok video, the five-part series, very emotional response to something specific. But anyways, I even say that I don't believe in gay marriage. I was like, I don't believe that gay marriage is a thing. In my vocabulary, I'm just married. I have a same-sex partner, a beautiful and amazing human being as my, my life companion. I just believe that marriage is marriage. And, you know, yes, there is gay marriage and a legal standpoint from same-sex marriage and having to, I don't want to invalidate the decades-long human rights that we've had to be able to, uh, all the pain and, and fighting that had to occur in order for us to legally get married. I don't want to invalidate that by saying gay marriage is not a thing. I'm just saying in my view, in my world, like when I center myself in, in this, I'm like, I'm not gay married. I'm married. I have a husband. I don't have a gay husband. I have a husband. I don't say my husband's name is Frank. I don't say, well, my gay husband, Frank, or my gay Frank. I don't label our marriage anything other than what it is, marriage. Through that period where I was living downtown and whatnot, I viewed myself as like, I don't understand why there is a difference between being gay and being straight. Like, I really toiled with why, why do I have to sit here and tell people that I'm gay? Why do I have to sit back and actually say out loud to people, well, I am gay. Don't get me wrong. I have a sense of pride because of where we were decades ago and where we are now to be able to say that and still have a level of persecution which exists on all levels of all humankind because there are always there's always somebody who doesn't agree with something that you either do or you believe in so there's always going to be some level of 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 that persecution out there but i just could not grasp the concept of having to say i'm gay what makes that part of me an attribute something that just makes up the whole person that is eric why does that have to make me different from somebody who is like in my mind for a number of years, I always looked at that as like, well, if I like in saying that I am gay, it's like I'm I'm an offshoot from everybody else, almost like a tiered thing. Like, like there wasn't this equality in it, which there wasn't in society and hence pride and being on equal terms, human rights, all of that. I always tried to get to this point where it's like, people be like, are you gay? I'm going to be like, are you? Does it matter if I tell you that I am. I have a same-sex partner, but I'm much more than just gay. It really bothers me when somebody introduces me to someone or they're talking about someone and they say, this is my gay friend. That doesn't make any sense because your friend is not gay. Your friend is Eric. You are Eric. 
and one aspect of you is that you are a homosexual, but that doesn't, we should not use that as a label or a title. We don't go around and say, hey, this is my straight friend, Brian. We don't do that. And, and yeah, so I can, I completely understand where you're coming from because I don't like that when, when people do that either. Uh, when I tell my story, uh, about being a police officer, uh, and my partner being killed, I always just about always have to say he was my patrol partner because people automatically assume that with partner, that there is that, and it should not be that way. I mean, there should not be that. I don't know that you would call that a stigma, but that automatic assumption with certain words. There is a TikTok therapist who refers to his wife as his partner. And for a long time, and I know him very well, and people would private message me and say, is he gay? And I was like, no, he's married, has two kids. You know, he doesn't put his personal life out there, but why does saying this is my partner automatically lead someone to assume that someone is gay. And so I don't think though, I think that clarification is unnecessary and it's sometimes offensive because that's not who you are. You are Eric Norman. This brings up, I have two thoughts. The first one goes back to, I said before I was, I was going to talk about my coming out story that I had something to say on the back end of that, right? People are like, well, what's your coming out story? And I was like, I'm living it right now. Just because you accept something doesn't necessarily make it right in any way. But I have accepted, due to our social norms and our culture, somebody who is not straight and anything else in between <laughs> lives a life of coming out. Every single aspect of my life, at some point or another, whether I realize it or not, I'm coming out. It's a lifelong struggle. <sighs> through through my young adulthood, you know, I didn't have to come out as often or have that feeling of coming out as often because every single person that I was sending, centering my life around was within the LGBT community already. I was working four different jobs. One of them was at a gay nightclub. All my best friends and everybody and, and, and a lot of those people are still in my life every single day. It wasn't until I decided to not step away from the LGBT community, but step away from like the direction of my life was going because up until I was about 21, um, even then, I was like, I have no idea what the hell I want to be when I grow up. I had a dream when I was a kid. One of my first words was plane. I've always, my dream has always been to be a commercial airline pilot. And once I tell you, like, the whole spectrum of, like, who I am and what I'm doing and where I'm at right now does not fit that dream whatsoever, which is, which is totally fine because I love my life and I, I found my niche, which is the most important aspect of living a happy the pursuit of happiness and respect to career in, in uh, a profession. I, I found my niche and, and I love what I do. So, so at 21, I was looking at the spectrum that was my life and I'm like, what, what am I doing? Where am I going to be 10 years from now? Where do I want to be at 20 years? What am, what's going to happen when I retire? Because I can't just work this eight, nine to five job right now and think that when I get to being you know, at the age of retirement, that this is going to be able to sustain the rest of my life. Like that's just not going to happen. And then what about kids? And then having to pay for those little things. And then, you know, like I, I wanted a more clear direction of where my life was going to go at the time. It wasn't that I didn't see any other option, but I did have, once my brother went into the Navy, 
um, when I was 10, very impactful for me. He went a week and a half, two weeks before 9-11 happened. And then 9-11 happened and he stuck through it. He had, he had a great enlistment when he was in. But I was very, I looked up to my brother when I was younger like that. And I, at 21, was like, well, you know what I could do? I could enlist into the military. And then I started doing my research. I started talking to people. And I ultimately ended up enlisting into the United States Air Force. I'm in the Air National Guard for New York State. And that was the pivotal moment of my life. And I didn't realize that for years to come after. But I enlisted and my job is a firefighter. So I not only became a firefighter and a first responder, but I also, you know, became a service member in the United States military. Since then, I've deployed twice overseas. Just last year, I was activated for um, New York State's response to COVID-19. I helped out with that for three and a half months and a lot of other little things throughout my career. I've, I've been on the, the base honor guard and performed military honors funerals for the last nine and a half years, which is a, a very rewarding something that I'm extremely passionate about. I did that actually full time for three years in between my deployments and absolutely loved it. So that whole experience, I realized and discovered my niche, which was public service. I am good at public service, public service in the sense of first responders, right? I was at an office job. And then I also at 24 bought my, bought my own house, my first house. I also in that town became a volunteer firefighter. Fast forward to marriage and then deployment, separating while on deployment, returning home, living a very liberated life for six months, and then meeting my now husband, deploying again, returning, understanding that, shoot, this guy really just stuck through a seven-month deployment after meeting and dating for three months. So he's the one for sure. I moved out of Buffalo and into Rochester where we now live. And I was like, wow, what am I going to do out here? So opportunity to take a civil service exam and become a police officer was presented to me and I did it. And now I've been a police officer for the last two years, which is amazing, right? Because I found my niche, public service first responders. And now my full-time civilian job is living that life while still maintaining being a firefighter and in the military. To go back to digress, now having said where my professions are and everything, these are very, very rooted in a masculine environment. Firefighters, muscular, you know, tough, strong men. Same thing with police, which obviously we know now is a lot different. But decades ago, when I was 21, I was like, oh my, don't ask, don't tell was just repealed. And here's my little gay butt going into the military and becoming a firefighter. Like, what is going to happen with this? At that time, because don't ask, don't tell was repealed. And I just battled for the last couple of years, coming out, my mother combating myself through accepting and, and self-identifying myself through adolescence, trying to navigate, you know, and separate my church teachings to what actually is okay and to just be me. I had this sense of security, strength, and resiliency, like I've said. And I decided going right into the military and I was going to be open. I wasn't going to take a stance where it was like, I have, I'm gay written on my chest, but it was going to be, if somebody asks you, you know, oh, are you married? Do you have a wife? I'll be like, no, I don't, you know, I, you know, you got a girlfriend? Like, no, I got a boyfriend though. You know, like, is that okay? You know, kind of thing. And it was difficult and it was hard. There was a couple instances that I'll 
remember of, you know, people not being appreciative that they had an openly gay battle buddy, wingman, or being on the police force kind of thing. But the amount of that exists of support and love and outright acceptance completely outweighs all of that. I still, even going into the police department, I think we were like six days into the academy because they're so new and there's so many new people coming in from various departments every single day, multiple times a day, everybody had to stand up and say their name, say something about themselves, why they wanted to become a police officer, that whole thing. We did that for like six days. On the sixth day, I think it was somebody that was very high up within our department that was in my final interview. And in my final interview, I you know, told them that like, you know, they're like, well, why Rochester? You're from Buffalo. And I was like, well, I'm settling down here with the love of my life. And we're going to, you know, have a family someday here or we want to have a family someday. And I want to have a stake in the community that they are going to be raised in. They knew that I was gay and that I was engaged at the time to a same sex man. And one of those people were in there in that class that day making us stand up. I just had this sense of like confidence. So I said everything that I said all the other times about why I want to be a cop and all this stuff. And then I said, and I'm recently engaged to my now fiance, Frank. And everybody's heads turned. They had no idea that I was gay up until then. But that's the kind of notion, that's the kind of wave of or impact that I want to be able to have in regards to that. I, I no longer want to go out there and have to be like, I'm gay. You know, people be like, oh, do you have a wife? I'll be like, oh, well, my husband, Frank and I, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's actually very like, prideful. And like, so you don't say, well, sometimes he acts like a wife. <laughs> no, but I get asked that all the time. Well, who's the wife in the relationship? Which is very offensive as well. Right. I, I don't let it get to me, but when topics like that come up or I'm pressed with things like that, I don't shut it down. I don't encourage it, but I do talk about it. I take more of an approach of like, Maybe you're just not understanding that what you said is not okay because we are in a multi-decade transition of culture change. And we're starting to get to a point where you can say, I can say my husband and heads don't turn, heads don't roll, you know, got into more of a place where it's common and accepted and okay. So before we, before we move into Doc Talks DX on Patreon, uh, I did want to ask you, and and hopefully you'll want to talk about this, and if not, then that's okay too. There was one night where you were on your live, you were very emotional, and you were talking about a former boyfriend who took his life uh, and how that affected you. Can we talk about that for a few moments? Absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you were working at a restaurant. No, I was working at the, the gay bar, okay. the club. All right. Well, I'll let you tell the stories that's yours, yours to tell. I had four jobs at one point for like a two month overlap. And then like I dropped the one, but still had the three. I was working at Express in the mall. I was working full-time at a restaurant, a fast local fast food joint called Jim Steakout. And then I was working Thursdays through Saturday nights at the bar. His name is Matt. And we had, it, we were a very recent relationship. It's not like we were dating for months on end. Honestly, it was like, we were dating and hanging out every single day and talking and like growing towards that. It had been weeks that we had been knowing each other. But on this particular day, it was a holiday where there's always like the white party or something like that for like the nightclubs and, the, and that. And obviously a very long night, a lot to set up. 
I had to go in early, take a nap beforehand. I was talking with him. He was at his house where he wasn't out. His parents were very involved with their church, so kind of a similar story that I had, which is probably why we connected so well right off the bat. So we had talked. He was uh, taking a shower. He was going to come over. I was going to take a nap real fast, get ready, and then we both were going to go. He was just going to hang out with me while I like set up the bar. And then I woke up, and he wasn't at my apartment. He wasn't answering his phone. He wasn't answering text messages. I didn't necessarily think that anything was wrong at the time. And I had to get ready. So I got ready. I went to the bar. Um, I kept trying to like text him and call him. And I'm like, what the hell are you? Like, what is going on? It was, it was like around 2 a.m. or something. And uh, my best friend had, uh, who basically introduced us originally, had ran up to me and was like, have you heard from Matt? And I'm like, no, I haven't. I've been trying to get a hold of him. He was supposed to come here with me, blah, blah, blah. Um, they're like, well, nobody can find him. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody can get a hold of him. And everybody's asking if you know where he is. And I'm like, I have no idea. Come to find out through the notification process from the police department, from university police to the family, to the friends, got back to me. He had left his house to come to meet me at my apartment and wake me up. And instead, he, on the way, he went to the university and climbed out a window on top of one of the the halls on the top floor of one of the buildings and jumped out and killed himself. He sent a text to everybody that that wasn't, I'm going to kill myself, but it was, you know, it was a message of like, you know, none of this is your fault kind of thing. He didn't send it to me. You know, some of his friends, we had, we had talked about that and discussed it and said, I don't know, I, I kind of came to, to terms with understanding that I, I didn't get one of those texts because he didn't want to make me feel hurt. And he had talked a lot with his friends that he, he thought that he was never going to be able to find love in his life. He was never going to be able to come out. He wasn't never going to be able to tell his parents. He was never going to be able to bring the love of his life home kind of thing. He's never going to find that person. It doesn't exist. So his friends told me that I probably didn't get a message like that because he didn't want to hurt me because he finally found that feeling that he can have with somebody else. I have been affected and have been around individuals who have either committed suicide or through drugs and alcohol have overdosed and lost their life. Like a lot of that has actually been in my life. And then of course, you know, you were a police officer, so you understand, you know, being being a police officer, firefighter, there are an unknown number of types of calls that you go to. You never know what call you're going to go to next. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. I've come to understand, especially in the military and in the police force, we have such high suicide rates. And one, one aspect of the reason why it's so high is because we don't talk about it as much as we need to do. You can't give somebody the idea of committing suicide as an answer. Like you can't put the idea into somebody's head by saying the word suicide out loud. And there is a huge stigma around just literally saying suicide or are you thinking about killing yourself? Like people find it so difficult to get there. And I understand it's okay. But what we need to do is get to a place where actually it is okay to ask somebody, especially if they're going through a lot of things. A lot of people do not want to tell you that they are going to commit suicide or they are thinking about it or they have suicidal ideations in any way. People aren't going to tell you that they self-harm. And if they do, that is their call for help. And you need to discuss that with them. You need to point blank, ask them, is everything okay? Are you okay? Are you thinking about hurting yourself or killing yourself? And if they're like pausing or hesitating or say, well, the thoughts come up before, you need to ask them if they have a plan. Then you need to get them help immediately. There is 
therapy through peer-to-peer talking that is extremely impactful. A lot of people just really want somebody to ask them how their freaking day went. You know what I mean? That's all that it takes sometimes. That's kind of where I'm at right now in growing this whole TikTok co-moodity is what we've called it, is centered around, you know, coming together and support mental health awareness and empowering each other to just be our most authentic self, combining all those things into, into being you. It's okay to have bad days. It's okay to not feel okay, but you have to understand that that feeling is not going to last forever. And if you ever forget your worth, you can come into our community and we're going to remind you of it. I openly talk about self-harm and suicide as if it's commonplace because it needs to be. And we have to get back to a place where we say that suicide is not okay. Yeah. And I like that you brought out the fact that you don't put the idea in somebody's head by asking them, are you considering committing suicide or do you want to hurt yourself? One of the things that I ask people sometimes is if I hung up the phone with you or if you leave my office, can you promise me that you're not going to hurt yourself? And then I say, until tomorrow when I talk to you again. And nine times out of 10, people will make that promise because they have something to look forward to, a phone call, a check-in the next day, and because they don't want to disappoint you. You know, nine times out of 10, when somebody commits suicide, they're doing it because they think they're protecting somebody else from themselves. And within the LGBTQ plus community, the suicide rate amongst the youth of that community is so high. It's so high. I try to remind people, would you rather have a homosexual son or daughter, or would you rather have a dead son or daughter? It's really your, your choice and your decision. I really appreciate the work that you are doing. I know that, uh, you're making a huge difference in, in countless lives and you're going to continue to do that. Um, we thank you for listening. Doc Talks today. I'm Doc Brian. As we go into the diagnosis part of this, you can find that episode on Patreon where we talk about the diagnosis and what we really think may be going on with our guests and discuss that diagnosis, potential treatment, and their coping skills and bring all of this together uh, to talk about how they deal with their mental illness. Eric, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Uh, and being our guest and joining us on the second part of this podcast to discuss your diagnosis. What, tell me where we can find you, what your, your Instagram, your Facebook, your website, all of that stuff. Absolutely. So everything is at Eric Norman lives. And then you can also go to ericnormanlives.com and find there. It's kind of like the, the launch page hub to, to all the social things, a little bit about me, stuff like that. Um, and then of course my TikTok is at officer underscore Norman. Great. Uh, of course, you can find me at the.brian.com on TikTok, doc underscore Brian, Instagram, the underscore doc underscore Brian, anything doc Brian, you can probably find me there. Feel free to follow us. There's a link at the bottom of my website for all of the social media platforms. And we look forward to having you next time. Please make sure to check out the second part of this episode, Doc Talks DX on Patreon. And Doc Talks is a part of the B Frank Network, and you can find that at bfranknetwork.com. Check out all of our podcasts there. Again, thank you for listening. Have a great day. Eric, thank you for being here with us. Mm-hmm.